I actually can't see my levels. Can you? Uh, do I look okay? Um, yeah, we're 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 lowish, but that's okay. That's it's always easy to add gain. You can't take it away if you're clipping. I take it as a compliment if I can be a little quieter than I normally am. That's a good thing. <laughs> I'm improving, <laughs> getting more zen in my ears. Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me, as always, is my co-host and fellow innovator, technologist, and futurist, Anju Ahuja. Before we get started, I wanted to reiterate that the opinions expressed by our guests are theirs and theirs alone, and are in no way meant to represent the opinions and or policies of the companies that employ them. Enough said. On this episode, we talk about one of our favorite topics, the future of gaming. Stay tuned. All right, so welcome to the Transpose podcast. Uh, we, at the beginning of our podcast, we like to introduce our guests with uh, a series of words that we think aptly describe uh, both of you. Uh, in this instance, your list is uh, the fruit of a collaboration between a mutual friend of yours, Brandon Maslin, and Anju. And so I'm going to give you your words. Pioneers, futurists, backward engineers of said future, team builders and fortifiers, collaborators, transformation agents, careful strategists, aggressive executors, ideators, modest, and self-aware, which I think is likely a critical trait to innovate in the environments that you're in, particularly given your backgrounds. So I'm going to give just a quick synopsis of your background, Uma, and then I'm going to hand it off to Justin to talk about Christina's background. Uma Jayaram is a former professor and a technology entrepreneur who successfully sold her company, Voke, to Intel. She went on to lead the engineering team that delivered the first Winter Olympics VR experience in 2018, leveraging the technology acquired through Uma's startup. She is now GM of Seed at Electronic Arts, an R&D and innovation department that is focused on advanced avatars, future of graphics and making rendering more efficient, deep testing and tools to enable this, and one of my personal favorite topics, generating art using ML and AI. So thank you for joining us, Uma. So glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. All right. And we also have Christina Lee. Uh, she's the marketing and creative genius behind the rise of Supercell, a mobile gaming category leader. If any of you recall the 2015 Super Bowl spot featuring Liam Neeson, uh, that is but one example of the type of creative prowess and quirky personality she brings to marketing campaigns and game design. She was the marketing lead behind Clash of Clans, arguably the most successful worldwide mobile gaming brand. And last but not least, she's likely one of the few marketers in the industry that is deeply involved in new game development and developing uh, intellectual property from scratch. So welcome, Christina. Thank you. Uh, very honored to be here in great company. 
So today's theme is how you both think about thinking about the future of games and then making that a reality, especially given both of you are non-traditional and non-core gamers, which I think is pretty unique overall. So we're really looking forward to diving in. Hold on. I'm going to challenge you first, Anju. When you say non-traditional and non-core, what do you mean? Oh, that's such a good question. And I really (laughs) struggled with whether or not to use those labels. So when I think of non-core, I think of people that are, you know, they probably sample games and they may play the games, but they're not playing competitively or for profit or for any kind of um, uh, shared entertainment on Twitch or another platform. But I I should ask you, Uma and Christina, how would you guys describe non-core and non-traditional in your context? Because you both come from very different parts of the gaming world, too. You know, I think when you think about the gaming world, I think it's very narrow to think of it just in terms of the person playing the game. Yes, that's critical. That's the core. But there's so much to the onion around that, right? There are so many layers that really enable that core experience to be the best that it can. So I come more from the technology and business aspects of it. And so I just think those are as Uh, critical to the whole mission of creating games, even if, say, I'm not a competitive gamer. And Christina, what do you think? Yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like the definition of what is a hardcore or casual gamer has changed so much. And even today, I think people uh, really have different definitions because on one level, it could speak to the number of hours that you're playing games. It can also speak to um, how competitive you are and how much you're looking for that skill-based challenge. Um, But it could also be, you know, how much do you, are are you a completionist? Do you want to check off every box that is available to you? And something like that even uh, differs depending on the genre of games that you're talking about. And so I think in short, like it, whenever you have to give these types of words or categorize players in this way, you have to also give a lot of caveats on what you mean, uh, whether you're talking about frequency or length of play or um, what motivates them as players. Good clarification, Justin. Thank you for, for prompting us on that. So what I love about having the two of you together here today is that Uma, you largely come from the technical side and can speak to the technical side of innovation in games. And Christina, you bring a very complementary perspective from the marketing and product side of innovation in games. And you both operate in different categories of games. So I I think this is going to be a really great dynamic conversation. Don't hold back. Share all your thoughts. We're really eager to learn what you think is going to evolve over time. Sounds great. Yeah, I have to say that uh, I'm excited as being, I I fall into the non-traditional, non-core gamer. I, I Love the tech and I love playing with things, but I certainly don't have 75 hours to finish, you know, uh, an epic uh, game on on my console. Um, But I do also have a a background in marketing. So I think I I will learn a lot from your perspective. So I'm very uh, excited to have this discussion with you guys today. Great. So I'm going to start from a point in time. Uma, when I first met you, you were in the process of determining where you were going to land next. You had just left Intel. Uh, you were thinking about what what you really wanted to evolve into. Talk about how you navigated that whole process and made your way to Electronic Arts, considering you weren't in the gaming industry and you weren't necessarily looking to become a gamer either. You know, that's a, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's fun to look back and think about that journey. And I'll try to, um, you know, kind of um, 
frame it in a context that is maybe helpful to the folks listening to this podcast so that there is some relevance. So I think the key point that I wanted to make there is, um, I think when you're open to possibilities and when you don't over-prescribe where you want to go and how you see your skill sets, it's incredible the things that open up. And, um, you know, in my journey, after I left Intel, uh, you know, it was right in the midst of the pandemic. And, you know, um, so a couple of months later, I joined EA. And during that period, I just wanted to highlight, um, you know, a couple of things that I did that I thought, uh, you know, would maybe be interesting to folks listening in on this. Uh, one was I realized that, you know, through the period when we had our startups and, you know, running the startups and, you know, making those successful, bringing those to uh, Silicon Valley and then selling it to Intel, then scaling the team and technology at Intel, what happens is that you tend to get more and more into the management side of things, which is great, and that is a natural evolution. But at the same time, you tend to get a few degrees of separation from the core technology. And that started bothering me after a little bit. And so what I did was when I had a few months in between, uh, I just took it as a challenge to myself to really dig deep and get some mastery and some expertise on some of the areas that my team was already working on when I left. And I was peripherally involved, but really did not have the time, um, you know, or the bandwidth to engage with it. So uh, one kind of concrete example of that, uh, I really wanted to understand more about, uh, you know, cloud and, and, you know, get something tangible from that learning. And so, you know, it was exciting to go back to be a student again after having been a professor also for so many years. And I actually, um, you know, got my, uh, got two certifications with AWS. I just chose AWS just, just, just because. And, um, you know, so got the cloud practitioner, which is relatively easier. And then also a couple of months later, got the uh, AWS uh, solution architect uh, certification, which is pretty intense. So, um, you know, so, so when I did that, I feel that it really gave me even more of that confidence that I was still very close to the technology or that I can learn. And I felt that I was role modeling to my team, my former students, this concept of lifelong learning. Uh, so when I was presented with an opportunity to lead the uh, applied research and innovation team uh, at Electronic Arts, it's a team called SEED, uh, it was really an amazing opportunity. And um, what I realized was that I could bring the experience that I've had in weaving together technology, business, and, um, you know, my inherent love of leading people. So being able to uh, weave those together in a new industry. And it's interesting how uh, there is really such a strong foundation and so much commonality, um, you know, even across the various industries. And so, for example, uh, you know, the experience that I've had um, with multi-engine, multi-platform, and, uh, you know, making sure that there is that compatibility or whether it be, you know, the rendering aspect of things from the CAD uh, world or whether it be 
uh, in terms of the um, experiences that you bring through the VR headsets, or whether it be, uh, you know, how you bring together hardware and software, uh, realities, the evolution, and how you keep the architecture such that you are able to then evolve these or how do you do the testing and how do you do the CICD? So these were all problems that are really common. And, and so that was what uh, excited me and the ability to do it, where I could now also be working with artists, the character artists, the beautiful, beautiful artwork um, and the people and the tools that are bringing that together. Uh, I really thought it was an opportunity of a lifetime. And you've landed in the right place because you are you are much admired, and you recently gave a great talk on AI uh, at EA as well, which I know, which was very well received, also. So, congrats on finding that fit. So, Christine, your journey was a little different, right? So, you came in uh, from the marketing side from Visa, and then transitioned to mobile gaming. That's a pretty big lateral jump, uh, I think, when people think about kind of industry knowledge. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I started my career at Visa and was driving a lot of efforts in brand marketing as well as product marketing. Um, and, you know, I would say that Visa was actually a terrific place to learn the foundations of building a world-class brand. Um, and one of the reasons why is because uh, it's a payment processor brand and we all know that no one really cares about their payment processors. And so um, we have to just do so much more uh, to really uh, build that emotional connection with our consumers and um, to really make this brand beloved. And um, there, uh, there's, and with that, you know, comes a level of, um, intentionality and a level of thoughtfulness. And so there's certainly so much that I learned in terms of the craft of building a type of brand that would be globally recognized um, and one that would um, have that staying power for decades. Um, but towards the end of my time there, I actually realized that, you know what, I, I, I wanna go to an industry where people have that genuine fandom and that genuine passion for the product and being a gamer myself, I actually recognized an opportunity to take what I, I had learned on the brand marketing side and bring it into mobile gaming. Um, and mobile gaming at the time uh, was at an inflection point where the perception then was that people thought of mobile games as these like gimmicky uh, distraction type of games. And um, what I wanted to do was come in and really change that perception um, and I joined Supercell in 2014 um, with the uh, intention of really building our game's brands to the level of world-class brands like a Nike, a Coca-Cola, and Disney. Um, and Supercell certainly had that ambition and had that long-term view and thinking about the games. Um, and so uh, a lot of it, yeah, was just kind of thinking about what kind of skills I had really cultivated at, at Visa and how do I bring it to a different industry and especially an industry that I was passionate about. So what was different, right? Human nature doesn't change, right? We understand there, you know, we all have to appeal to base motivations of people and, and give them kind of an emotional uh, story that they can append to their own narrative. But what, what was different when you, when you tried to create a brand around mobile gaming than it was around payment processing? Although we all understand that mobile gaming it relies on payment processing. So so one of the biggest differences that I see between marketing a brand like Visa and marketing a game brand is that 
with game brands, uh, a lot of it is actually is focused on the characters and the worlds. So essentially what you're doing is you're marketing the IP versus a, a traditional brand. And um, even within our company in the first few years, there was a lot of debate about whether we were building an IP versus a traditional brand like a Nike and Coca-Cola. Um, and earlier I had mentioned that you know the intention uh, when I joined was to build our gaming brands to the levels of these traditional brands, but it became very um, apparent through the work of our campaigns that what is really gold um, and what players love about games is the characters in the world. Um, right. You know, they want characters that, um, you know, they can connect with um, and they want to get to know more. And they also want to be in worlds um, and, you know, feel like it is a place that they actually want to spend time in. And so a lot of the marketing that we do is really building up these uh, memorable characters and worlds and make it feel like, you know, as a player, like you are running alongside the character, you are living in this world for a brief moment in time. And um, I think that is the one of the biggest differences between how you market a more traditional consumer brand and a gaming or entertainment brand. Um, but I will say that, you know, one thing that is consistent is um, even if in your toolbox for game marketing, you're dealing with characters and worlds, you still have to bring them to life in a way that hits on that universal truth. And I think that's what a lot of traditional brands do really well is being able to hit on these human truths that feel really relatable and feel like they're kind of digging into some pain point um, that uh, really is resonating. And so that that's something that I bring into the characters and the situations they're in is how do they, um, in the way that they interact with the world or interact with each other really hits on that universal human truth. So I, I want to build a little bit on what you just brought up there, which is, you know, fandom, right? And really building great games that are sticky so that people want to be in and involved in the experience. When you think about the future of immersive experiences and immersive gaming, Uma, what do you think is going to drive excellent product in that category? And how are you leveraging new emerging technologies to deliver that? So um, when I think about the future of gaming and what is going to, uh, you know, make us successful, I think, uh, you know, again, I look at it partly from a technologist point of view, but again, with the, um, you know, kind of the realities of, uh, you know, the game experience and the business and so on. And so taking a, a 360 view, I would say that end of the day, really, it's about the storytelling, right? It's about the storytelling and then being able to deliver that storytelling and experience, uh, you know, with the best of technology. So really, there's a lot behind the scenes, but it's like anything. When it's behind the scenes, you almost expect it to work. So it had better work, but really what people are focusing on is the end product and so the experience and, um, you know, kind of what is the, the narrative or what are all the things that you can do? What are the game levels and how are you uh, being matched with other players or, you know, how are you presenting new genres? And, uh, you know, if you think about games, ultimately, um, you know, it's, it's well known that really what draws us to games is, you know, kind of the sense of challenge. Uh, the sense of, um, you know, a choice, you have a choice in what you're doing. And then because of that choice, there is a change. And then because of that change, uh, you know, you, you progress in the game, but there's always that element of chance. 
So I really feel that we have to stick to those basics, but all the work that we do, whether it be in terms of rendering or whether it be in terms of, uh, you know, having these avatars in our games or the NPCs or, um, you know, how we are enabling cross-play, how are we doing cross-progression, how are we bringing in cloud gaming, uh, I think those all need to weave along with this magic of the storytelling and the narratives. So, so this is something that comes up at work a lot, at least for me. You know, this whole problem around how do you render efficiently for a world with highly immersive cloud gaming and other interactive experiences. I mean, how are you philosophically thinking about that, thinking about solving that problem? Or who do you think is going to be the category leader that does solve that problem? So I think talking in, uh, you know, rather um, general terms without getting into names, um, I think sometimes it's always so useful to go back to the basics, right? You go back to the basics and then kind of build again from that. And I think really the basics is to go back to the rendering pipeline or to always keep that in mind. And so you have the rendering pipeline and then, you know, you have the you know, the processing units, you have the visual appearance, you have shading, you have lighting, you have illumination, uh, you have acceleration algorithms, you have uh, pipeline optimization, you have graphics hardware. So how do all of these come together? And I think the innovation that's coming in this area, uh, you know, really comes down to kind of quality and time, right? So how can you... Um, enhance the quality and make sure you're doing this as fast as possible. And ultimately, the holy grail is the real-time rendering. So I think there are all these different pieces that are coming together. And if you think about the cinematic quality of rendering, right, uh, you know, we all know these numbers and, and metrics, um, you know, a particular frame could take, for example, uh, you know, tens of hours to render. And now when you're doing it re in real time, uh, you know, just think about the scale, right? Something that takes, you know, let's just say 300 plus minutes, you're bringing it down where you need to do 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second. Or when you ultimately get into what, you know, we are hoping in VR, it could even be 90 frames per second. So really, it's this faster and better. And the other aspect of it that I wanted to also highlight is, uh, you know, in terms of the hardware, for example, uh, so much innovation coming out in, for example, the consoles. So how to stay on top of that? And that also brings in another point of view about your architecture, right? You need to have an architecture that is well thought out, that is modular, that you can, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's an art in itself, really. It's a science and an art. And I'm a designer and an architect at heart. Love, love the aspects of that. But, you know, for example, you're getting in, uh, you know, new APIs. You can't just got your whole rendering pipeline and then go back right. again to create it because the games are going so fast. Uh, you have to put out these games. So how are you able to um, update, for example, your pipeline? And then maybe the last thing that I wanted to say was, uh, you know, you're getting all these, um, you know, the SOCs, the system on a chip, uh, you're mm -hmm. getting AI on a chip. Uh, mm -hmm. you, so how are you going ahead and utilizing those to bring bring uh, bring in efficiencies and also better quality in your rendering pipeline? So there's a lot there. <laughs> I want to unpack a lot of it. Um, but Christina, you're dealing with 
slightly different nuances when it comes to developing innovation in games, because the mobile gaming universe looks entirely different. And talk to us a little bit about the storytelling aspect and how you're innovating there. One of my goals is always to think about how do I use the characters and the worlds to help someone remember something about, um, you know, a friend or a family member or, um, yeah, you just even bring back like a very strong memory or to learn something about someone that they know. Um, And so I think that um, that kind of emotional response to me uh, is really important when it comes to doing marketing for games as well as like building the games themselves. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Anecdotally, I would say my favorite games are the ones that are emotionally evocative for me. So it's not just connecting. It it is connecting with the characters. It is connecting with the world. But it's also bringing out feelings within me that I would not have had I not been engaged in that experience in that moment. So how do you kind of help permeate that understanding throughout the company to the developers, to the artists and designers? Um, Because it's a very specific, that's a very specific goal. Um, I haven't heard it articulated that way before. I think it's pretty fascinating. So how do you make sure the entire company is thinking that way when they're developing? Uh, it's it's an interesting question um, because I, you know, there at our company, there's no structured way of doing that. And so what ends up happening is that um, you have to just be able to, you first of all have to be really embedded into the process where you are in an influential position um, to be able to work closely with the developers, with the artists to bring those insights to life. And um, there, you know, like I mentioned, it's not a very structured process. I think you have to figure out at different points in time in the development process, whether it's creating characters, um, whether it's creating a premise or different storylines, how to weave in those aspects and how to make sure that you're hitting on something that feels relatable and feels universal. Um, And so um, in short, yeah, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, having someone who has an eye for that work very closely with the developers and making sure that um, there, there is that intent to bring the level of relatability into the games. So Uma, how do you do that with machine learning and AI? How do you How do you lean them in that direction? Um, You know, it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, right off, I'll say, um, um, you know, like the the, the saying goes, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And so, uh, you know, as we think about ML and AI approaches and tools, uh, you know, whether it be for, um, you know, different aspects, whether it be for the uh, you know, avatar generation, whether it be for certain aspects of rendering or whether it be for testing, right? I mean, there's a big range of activities and functions uh, where we can use ML and AI in games. And as we think about this, um, you know, there's always that tension, right? Like most, uh, I think, most creative and most uh, futuristic things, there's always this tension where there is a, a short-term value proposition that you need to be serving to the teams, to the groups, because um, you know you you need to show the value. But there's also sometimes open-ended, and um, you know, frankly, uh, it could fail. So so you have those activities also. So what we do is we take a portfolio, a balanced portfolio approach to our projects and to these kinds of activities. And then what we do is we uh, it's like stocks and bonds. And so, you know, you have the short term uh, deliverables. And with that, you are also building trust 
with the game teams. And I use the word trust very deliberately because very often what happens is what happens is that these central teams and we are a central team there is always a danger of getting isolated or mm-hmm. you could be uh, what w- working at your own pace whereas say a game team needs these drops at a specific cadence and so i think it's very important to be in some way connected with the game teams and to have that exchange to show value but also to have the courage to stay the course on some of the longer term initiatives and one specific example that i wanted to share uh we also have some very innovative programs um where for example we have something called seed academy and for a period of anywhere from 1 month all the way to 6 months uh you know folks from the game teams can come and in a way embed with us and then we are able to um you know work on a project that is of interest to the game team but at the same time the nature of it is more exploratory with something new which then uh, the individual can take back to the game team so i think we need to have these different mechanisms and at the same time build trust and have a focus on both short term and long term priorities. So I I think it's very obvious the complexity here that is involved in executing well when it comes to delivering a great game mobile or not and you know the more involved the game probably the more the complexity on the technology side. So so let's talk about unintended obstacles to success in general in your environments because both of you are trying to push the envelope in different respects but definitely trying to make better games, more engaging games, more interesting games, trying to transcend genre boundaries or you know limitations of where content has been historically and to where it can go. So when you think about all of that walk through how you deal with unintended obstacles to success and what those look like in your environment so that people that are listening have a chance to sort of reflect in their own environments and say oh here's another approach when i when i confront that from my perspective if i think about the certain principles i have in mind to make great games uh, on a high level they're one um you know how do you design a game that's easy to pick up and hard to master and um what this means is you know it's you have to be able to create games that have an easy entry point but uh is has enough depth that the more hardcore engaged players would be interested in and the challenge there is you know being able to respect the genre that it's in while still making the game accessible enough so that new players mm-hmm. um will right. be able to enjoy it um so that's one aspect the second um principle is the ip side so taking something familiar yet uh giving it that fresh twist so again it's the tension point of you know making sure that you're respecting the genre but also bring something new to it um and when i think about the obstacles that can come from being able to deliver a game that really hits on those two points uh a lot of the times is that you have something that just can feel like a frankenstein product um or it like you know all of the pieces are not clicking together or just something feels off at a gut level um uh, because at the end of the day what you're doing is you're trying to create something new and something different and it might not feel right and the advice i would give is to constantly challenge what it is that you've built and to not be afraid of throwing things out completely whether it's you know the meta of the game or whether it's the premise or certain characters um i think for for myself i always try to think about like 
you know, is this good enough? And if not, like, how do I make it better? And sometimes that involves just like killing something completely in the game that you've already crafted and spent a lot of time uh, building. But um, from my perspective, like it's that kind of um, like fearlessness in in being able to kill uh, certain things that aren't working that will ultimately lead to great products. So so let's explore that because that's actually something I'm very interested in this notion of fearlessness. When you both entered this industry, having come from other industries, you probably noticed at any point in time, because this happens in any innovation environment, that you might experience corporate risk aversion or complacency, flawed decision-making models, um, people just not being in the same place in the innovation you know, adventure, or it's just not an adventure to them. It's a painful journey. How did you, how did you deal with those moments when they arose? For me, Anju, I always start from a place of, um, you know, and again, this is a word that people who know me use, uh, know that I use this in my vocabulary. So I I started from a place of um, a combination of confidence and compassion. And so confidence that I had the fundamental building blocks. Uh, I had the technical expertise, the business Uh, experience and also the ability to lead teams and it's just that those building blocks had been put together in a different way um, in my prior uh, positions and companies and uh, university positions and so on and here I was being given an opportunity to put it together in a different way so I think that confidence that the basic building blocks were there um, and that excitement about putting it together in a new way was really uh, helpful and that, that was great and the other thing that i that i really used was the sense of compassion and this is a compassion for myself so to be kind to yourself when you go into these environments and i think even for your listeners i really want to uh, you know kind of underline this message that we are often very harsh on ourselves when we go into these environments. And so that self-compassion really, really makes you stronger, actually. So compassion for yourself as you're going through that, it gives you that oxygen and that space to be joyful and to learn things for the joy of it. And then similarly, having compassion for others who may have that view that, okay, this person is not in gaming, so will that person be successful? And to have that compassion that it's natural for them to have that thinking and let's work to address that, right? Instead of bristling about it. So I think these were the two things that I used um, as I went into this new position. Very wise words. Christina? So for me, the biggest obstacle going into my position at Supercell was that I didn't come from games. And you know, I was surrounded by people who were well steeped in the gaming industry. And so uh, there was a little bit of that, uh, that fear or self-doubt that, you know, I might not know what I'm doing. But something that really helped me was having a clear understanding of the unique value that I could bring. And in, in the case of Supercell, their ambition was to get our games um, into the hands of people who are not traditional gamers. And I thought about how, you know, for me, like, you know, having grown up and played games, but not having worked in the gaming industry, there was a lot of value 
I could bring to just help people think about how to make whatever it is we were doing so much more accessible. Um, and again, you know, how to hit on that universal truth, how to bring in other references from other industries that people um, in gaming might not have thought about um, and really taking inspiration from that. Um, and uh, again, just like really understanding the unique perspective I could bring uh, really helped like carry me through my entire career at uh, Supercell because um, the other um, aspect of it is I was able to end up creating roles that people in the company might not have thought about. When you think of a brand globally, there's a, there's a massive challenge, right? You have to be able to translate the meaning of that brand into different languages mm-hmm. across different cultures. Um, and it struck me as you were talking about creating characters and games and that intellectual property, that's a, even an order of magnitude harder. To make a character memorable, you have to exaggerate mm-hmm. certain qualities, whatever those qualities are. And how do you t- toe that line between um, making sure that these are exaggerated qualities and that people can relate to across cultures without being perceived as taking advantage of cultural tropes or... Like cultural appropriation? Yes, cultural appropriation or something like that. Oh, this is a very complex topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Should this be podcast number two? Should we? Uh, there, there are a ton of nuances. Um, and something that I'll add uh, j- just to shed light on this complexity is that what I may perceive or what others might perceive as an Asian American might be very different from how the Asian market perceives characters. And so, um, you know, you can't just say on a blanket statement, we want an Asian character because Asian characters will mean different things um, depending on your background, how you grew up and where you're from. And uh, so, you know, within the company, it it is very difficult because you have to dig into nuances like that um, and be able to really, uh, or I, I should say it's very difficult to be able to hit that sweet spot, like you had mentioned of, um, finding something that feels authentic and relatable um, has those exaggerated features that work well with characters, um, but but doesn't offend. Um, and right. um, the the only advice that I can give is you you have to just talk to a lot of people. Um, you have to get a lot of perspectives going into games, and you also have to have the mindset that you know when you design one character, it can't satisfy everyone's needs. It can't represent everyone's stories or everyone's viewpoints. And so when designing characters, you have to think about the cast of characters and not put that pressure and burden on one particular character to do all of that work. And so when you think about it from that perspective, um, it gives you more room as a creative to think about how do you make that cast more diverse instead of saying like, here's this one Asian character and this Asian character has to represent all aspects um, or all experiences of an Asian character. Um, so yeah, that, that, that would be um, my viewpoint on that. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. There, there have been changes in the industry of late. You know, many people think cloud gaming has finally found its moment in time. Um, crossplay is a hot topic. What do you guys think the future brings in, in both of these areas in your respective categories? Yeah, um, it's interesting when you think about the state of mobile games today, uh, because even a, um, a decade ago, people really wanted mobile games that were simple and designed for mobile devices. They didn't want their console experiences on their phones and their tablets. But yep. uh, fast forward to even just a few years ago, you have um, a lot of 
big gaming studios um, going into mobile and you're starting to see a lot of these AAA experiences on mobile as well. And so it almost seems like the lines are now getting blurred. And um, I do think that the expectation of players is changing in that they want that level of fidelity. They want that level of immersion. Um, you know, they, they want deep characters. They want, um, you know, some level of storytelling in games and that uh, the mobile games that used to work in the past don't work now. There's just a, a whole different standard now. And um, along with that, you know, I think is um, just the ability to play with people anywhere and at any time. Um, and so I definitely think cross-platform is uh, the, really the future of games. Christina, I think you make some excellent points. And, um, you know, kind of um, segueing from there, um, I really feel that, uh, and this is, uh, you know, this is not me speaking from a company point of view or something, but as a person even following the market and so on, um, you know, essentially, if you look at some numbers, I mean, overall, say 2021, um, I think the mobile games revenue uh, accounts for about 52% of the global market. So, you know, the, the market's about 93 billion and 52% is mobile game. And, um, you know, I think... So far, um, you, you know, many of the games were mobile only or you had the AAA games. I think that's where it gets interesting. So, uh, you know, the AAA games, uh, if the people developing it, the people working on it, you know, almost feel like, you know, they're working on a Porsche or some kind of a high-end car. And then now you've got to make it work on mobile. So what does that mean, right? How can you bring that, um, you know, essentially that power, that quality, that responsiveness uh, to mobile and also uh, bring in consideration of, uh, you know, specific things for mobile, like say battery life, right? So, uh, or, or connectivity. So I think it's such an interesting, such an interesting space. And so I think uh, one aspect of this to start with is uh, even like, you know, some of the AAA games and so on, and there are some already available, but uh, um, you know, what I'm saying is how do you think of that whole uh, spectrum of how you develop these games because typically the games for the consoles and PCs are developed even if it's the same game right it's developed very different and in, in a completely different group than the mobile part of it so how does that whole development cycle that architecture that sharing of assets that um, you know can you have like a common piece through most of it, and then kind of have the last mile going into these devices. Today, that's not the case, uh, you know, for various reasons. But obviously, that brings in even efficiencies in terms of development. So how can we bring all of these together? And at the same time now, from the player point of view, uh, you know, is how easy is it really to start a game at home on your console and then you're in the train or you're in the bus and then you pick it up on mobile? What are you giving up? And what are you getting instead, right? It's always that trade-off. And then, um, and so that's more of the cross-progression, I should say. And then the cross-play is if you're bringing, if your friends, your buddies are on other devices, uh, you know, how can you all play together? So I think uh, mobile players are also going to demand 
uh, better quality and, um, you know, essentially more compatibility with the uh, games that, uh, you know, the form in which they are available on the PCs and consoles. And I think it's a very, very uh, interesting space and a rapidly evolving space. Yeah, and something that I'll add is I think maybe the main takeaway is like players just want choice. And they certainly mm-hmm. have their choice of quality right. games now. But, um, you know, with cross-platform, they have the choice of the kind of uh, context um, and experience that they're playing in. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a great time to be a player. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think I think cross-play is here to stay. And I think it's going to become much more common uh, to play across platforms. So I, I, I'm curious. We've kind of touched on this in the context of engagement and in new immersive technologies. World building is a big part of what that game experience ultimately feels like to the player, you know, how you think about that. Do you guys think, given the new type of talent that's coming into the game industry, that world building will fundamentally shift in certain ways or it will be influenced in certain ways? You know, definitely there's a huge influence from the user-generated content, right? Mm -hmm. So even as we think about world building, I think the tools. So we often think just about the assets, but I think all of these, they have the assets and the final, uh, you know, the output, but there's also the tools and the pipelines that are enabling that. So, you know, I'm just shedding the light on one aspect of it. Obviously, there are so many different aspects of this world building in the future, but Uh, I think the user-generated content and how that plays, how can you allow for certain stylized content to be brought in, right? So that it's true to the game, but at the same time, you're giving people the uh, tools and techniques to be creative and then to share that. I think that will be one very interesting aspect of this uh, world building. Uh, I I agree. I think the, you know, when I look at what's happening now with like... um, GPT three mm-hmm. and and Dolly and and Google's uh, uh, you know Imagine mm-hmm. two, um, I, I have to assume that we're going to be seeing this same level of basically a descriptive uh, you know visual generation heading into the three D realm into you know just someone can just describe the world they want and at least get a base render of that pretty quickly. It's going to be pretty fascinating. What, what do you, I mean, this is where you may say, I can't talk about it, but where, <laughs> what, what's, what's happening, uh, you know, um, on the, in the, like the EA side on, on, I'm assuming there must be development tracks going on with that. Um, you know, again, as a, uh, applied research and innovation team, we also have a charter of, uh, publishing, and presenting in conferences and being on panels. So, uh, you know, we, we, we share a lot of our knowledge. And so, uh, you know, I can speak from all of, uh, you know, kind of those resources and so on. And so uh, it's exciting sure. for us in EA to be part of the ecosystem, to share the things that we are working on. And, um, you know, some of the work that we have uh, talked about in our uh, in the conferences, or we also have, for example, consortium with universities. So that again is very powerful because what it does is it allows us to bring real world problems and at the same time understand what is some of the cutting edge uh, technology going on. Uh, you know, just from the academia or folks whose charter it is to move and to uh, evolve the state of the art. And in that context, maybe. You know, just a couple of things that I can give as examples. Um, so, you know, we we have 
publish some of the work we've done, for example, in uh, ML-based cloth simulation. So, uh, you know, when you have, say, jerseys and players and so on, uh, you know, how can you use ML and that training uh, for cloth simulation? How can you take, uh, and I'm giving other examples uh, from our public work, uh, you know, how can you say, um, you know, take uh, voice input and then, you know, have the, um, you know, the character, the the facial, um, you know, movement and so on to be realistic. So those are all trained on uh, ML models. We also use ML for testing. as And as you can imagine, people don't think about it. They think about the final game, they think about the design, they think about the tooling, but um, testing is like a huge, huge part of of our games. And, uh, you know, and again, we are so grateful to all the testers who bring their energy and all of their, um, you know, creativity along with all our creative talent. And so uh, we are providing now tools to remove some of the drudgery for the testers and to be to empower them so that they can uh, you know use the testing right at the design stage almost so it's very interesting instead of throwing it over the wall and saying well I'm designing you test it tell me if there's any problem you're bringing the testing further upstream in the design cycle and uh, you know I come from a engineering background and so it's almost like you know, we would have this concept of design for manufacturing. So you don't design, throw it over the wall and say, well, tell me whether you can manufacture it or not. You consider it as you're designing. And so this is almost bringing the testing up up uh, into, you know, up further in, in your cycle. So bringing it to the front. So I think, um, you know, these are some, and then maybe the last one I can share is, uh, you know, we have work on how, uh, we can use ML for some of our avatar creations, right? So as you can imagine, characters are so important and how we uh, populate our games with these characters. And so there is work going on in using ML for that to again help our uh, creators and provide them with tools and techniques and assets uh, you know, that, that will uh, help them make better games. So something that I suspect might be happening more and more is that we let the fans take ownership of the IP and start to shape the story and character uh, and um, just, uh, you know, even the little details of, you know, what might be happening. So, um, you know, as, as just as some context, I feel like uh, for a very long time, a lot of the IP creators and uh, the writers, the artists have had very tight reins on the IP. They have a very clear idea of where they want it to go. And um, of course, the best ones will always fill in the details and see where this will go like many years out. But I think more and more, there will be game uh, makers who want to just create a sort of a loose framework, a loose premise, um, have the right seeds of the IP in there, and then uh, just see where the fans really take it and really pay attention to how they're thinking about different characters, like any kind of speculations they might have, or even like conspiracy theories they might uh, have like uh, around the game world and really just run with it and start integrating into the story. And so in a sense, it feels like, you know, the fans are shaping the IP along with the game makers. And uh, I, I feel like um, having that kind of fan participation is really important. And we will likely see more and more of that. 
So how have evolution, how's the evolution of, let's say, mobile networks or, you know, we can talk about wired networks or just networks in general and network capabilities. How has that impacted all of this or is it? So do you, for instance, Christina, say, hey, in the world of 5G, I can deliver this kind of game experience. And so we're going to design it differently from the start. Or do you just say, oh, you know, it might make it more efficient, but it's not really going to change the principles of how we approach product development? Uh, I would say from my perspective and Supercell's perspective, we don't necessarily think about that first. It's all about just having a great game idea and then seeing how we can bring that to life in more extensive ways using technology. But it, it is in technology first. Okay. And Uma, coming from your point of view, which is steeped in technology and technology advances, how do you guys see this? Like the evolution of networks affecting what product development looks like, if that's even a thing, or is it just, uh, well, it'll make it nicer, but not how we're going to think about it, not part of like the fundamentals of design. Right. You know, again, talking in very uh, general terms, I think, you know, all the products that we design, all the games that we design, uh, you know, fundamentally, we try to um, start with the basic principles that if something's going to make the game better in the next version, uh, you know, we definitely want to consider that and we want to be able to incorporate that, of course, you know, in the right way at the right time. So I think, uh, you know, first principles are always that, uh, you know, make your design, your game, your architecture, your pipeline, your engine, um, you know, and again, when we talk about engine, we have our own internal engine, uh, Frostbite, or, you know, some of the games are on the other engines. But, uh, you know, essentially, fundamentally being able to bring these innovations in as direct and as, um, you know, kind of uh, you know, uh, kind of minimizing the disruption while enhancing the benefit that it will bring. And uh, to your question of whether, um, you know, and again, talking in very general terms, uh, these kinds of technologies, I think just like any other company, uh, you know, I think there will always be people uh, studying this, um, studying how this is, um, you know, this is relevant uh, to the particular business. And then there are some people looking at it in a more, um, you know, it's it's almost like a, you know, this will be added, right? This will be added later, and we'll evolve mm-hmm. and we will modify as needed. But making sure you have that path to incorporate it with my, uh, you know, while minimizing the disruption. So, Christina, I have a favorite topic of yours that often comes up um, when we uh, when we're chatting because you're very inspired, um, and I've seen your eyes light up, you know in the course of many conversations that we've had. Where do you get your inspiration from outside of games? And how does that influence how you think about games? Because I know you borrow from a lot of other categories and a lot of other sectors. Yeah, so um, so just to give you some context there, uh, when I first started my career in marketing, a marketing executive had given me the, uh, the advice that, you know, if you want to do something very innovative, you have to look outside of your category. So for example, if you were a vodka brand, you know, maybe you look at what or how other perfumes are being marketed. um, And you really take that playbook and bring it into your your industry and then make it your own. Um, And certainly, you know, when I joined 
supercell um, the, the example that i gave was you know we didn't want to look into what other mobile games were doing we wanted to look at what other consumer brands were doing in terms of uh building up this like premium perception and how to drive emotional connection um and i would say for um for me now a lot of where a lot of where i get inspiration from is actually looking at entertainment and in particular i look at tension points and weird pairings of things so um, maybe as an example, um, a show that I recently watched and loved was uh, Severance. And I don't know if you, any of you have seen that show or have heard of it, but um, what was so genius about it is it felt like a very sinister version of The Office. Um, it was like a workplace drama, but of course, mm -hmm. a very dark. Um, but it also had uh, this topical angle of really capturing this feeling of uh, no boundary between your work and personal life, which a lot of us felt during the pandemic. And of course, like the dread of coming back to the office. And so I think about a show like that and all of the different elements they were able to bring together in such a fresh way. And it was truly inspiring. And so um, that, that's kind of like one example of how I look to um, other industries, especially in entertainment, just to see what are some elements that normally wouldn't go together, but is able to come together in uh, this great like product or um, this great piece of entertainment and really um, just shock people or um, bring uh, an element of delight to people in ways that, you know, they've never experienced it. Yeah, I love that. The harvesting of the beauty of, you know, what's incongruent fundamentally and, and what's beautiful about that. That's really great. You brought up something just now, Christina, about like looking for inspiration from other fields. Um, uh, do either of you do that on a uh, on a regular basis? I know that you know uh, working in the past with with Unju actually on a lot of ideation sessions for uh, kind of kind of uh, future casting things like that. We would bring in a number of experts from you know outside fields, whether they be psychologists or product designers, um, engineers. Um, do you have any kind of institutional way that you bring in those out outside influences today? Um, you know we. It's, it's an, such an interesting question. And um, I think there's always a, a tension also when you bring somebody in that is not aligned with the core uh, business. So, for example, like, you know, in our team, we have, you know, renderers and ML engineers and data analysts and software engineers. And so if I was to bring someone, uh, you know, to talk about art or something like that, it'll be very interesting. Like, you know, I... I and and I think now you've sparked some thoughts here, and uh, it's an experimentation I need to do. So I'm sure we do it at a at a company level, but I'm just talking in terms of my uh, BU. But one thing that we did recently, which was very successful, uh, you know, we brought in a futures expert, and so um, you know, I love to go on O'Reilly. It's a you know, it's a platform where you get a lot of technical information, and I I you know maybe in January or so he was giving a one hour talk and I, uh, you know, signed up for it, listened to it, reached out. And then one thing led to another. And then he ended up coming and giving our team, um, you know, kind of very customized, but five modules in terms of how to think about, uh, you know, futuring. And so um, how you look at signals. And so again, not looking at a crystal ball, but how do you go ahead and, um actually like tangibly tools and frameworks to think about it. So I think I can offer that up as one example of the things that we do to go beyond oh, oh, do you our... Just, 
Do you just want to give Phil a shout out here? So that if he's listening, he knows it, he knows yes, that he's yes. so you're referring to him. Phil this is yes. Phil Balactus. And, um, you know, we're all now, um, uh, you know, certified futurists, I guess. So we had about, uh, you know, 30 plus people participate. And what we did was we invited our friends and colleagues from game teams or other central teams. And so what that did was it created a very nice ecosystem where for two and a half hours, we were all there. So, you know, just a Zoom session and he also went to Stockholm and was there with the team for one of the sessions. But I think these are the kinds of exercises where uh, we step out of the day-to-day work and then we are able to think a little bit outside the box. Yeah, so something that we would do pretty intentionally is bring speakers from other industries and uh, just really learn um, the the trade of their craft and what they're doing um, to get inspired themselves um, and how they're enacting change in their industry. And uh, the, the trick is always, uh, you know, figuring out um, how to be able to draw inspiration from what they're doing, but make it applicable to what we're doing. Um, but uh, again, I think like learning from other speakers um, is something that has been really valuable for us. I also wanted to mention that, uh, you know, my team, for example, uh, uh, you know, we are all um, primarily, uh, you know, engineers, software engineers, uh, ML researchers, um, renderers. Um, So very, very technical. And it's so interesting when I have a Zoom call, I would say just about everybody, and again, apologies to the folks uh, who, you know, maybe I'm being overly, overly generalizing here, but I would say most of my team, you will see a musical instrument in the background. And, um, you know, one of my team members, um, he has, I think, maybe 10 guitars. And so uh, I just wanted to point that out that, um, you know, typically, Technical people are also very creative. And I think people tend to think of creativity and this kind of technical skill as being in two buckets. But my experience always has been that uh, you see a lot of people doing this kind of creative technical work are also, you know, they, they, they're very good musicians or they have that interest. And I, I thought that was something interesting and I would, I would share with you all here today. Sounds familiar Mm -hmm. coming from someone who's got at least 10 (laughs) guitars. That is actually interesting. Justin, do you love them all equally? I I, I do. And I I made a number of them. So. Wow. And he's made a lot of music on them, which I've had the privilege of hearing over the years. What kind of genre? I'm curious of music. Pop, rock, you know, it's nothing that that requires a degree to create. (laughs) So, so Justin, when you say that, it reminds me of, of a story I was just uh, listening to. Uh, there was this professor who divided his class into two groups, and uh, it, it was a pottery class. And one half of it, he said, uh, at the end of the class, you will be graded on one pot that you are creating. You can work on this pot as much as you want, but that's the pot that I'm going to um, grade you on. And the other one, he said, it's more about the quantity, right? Just keep going, just keep creating as many pots as you can. And end of the class, 
Now, you know, when you when you build up the story this way, people think, oh, the people who worked on that one part um, did a much better job. The story goes that he found that the people who had created many, many parts actually came out with a better part. And the thinking goes that they were experimenting, right? They were not afraid of failure. So they could make, break, make, break. And in the end, they really had a superior product. So go figure. Yeah, I think uh, I like to say that, you know, creativity is really destruction, right? You have to start breaking things down first. <laughs> and then when you break it. them apart, suddenly you realize how, how you can maybe put them back together differently. Yes. And to go past the fear, right? To go past yep. the fear. Yep. You need to break down, right, that executive function uh, and your prefrontal cortex and, and get back <laughs> to your amygdala to find out what really connects with people. We're coming up on yeah. time, so I'm going to ask a question uh, to both of you. I'm going to try and make it a little hard and a little easy. So in the movie The Graduate, Dustin Hoffman, right, 1967, uh, family friend gives him uh, career advice in one word, of course, in that, at that time, he said plastics. <laughs> what I want to know from uh, Uma and Christina, when you think about the future of gaming, what's the one word that everyone should be aware of? going forward. I might have a s somewhat of a different perspective or maybe like a different word than maybe uh, uh, what everyone else is coming up with. But I, I do want to say soul. I think it's very easy when you're talking about the future of gaming um, to get too lost in the functionality of things um, and in the tech. And of course, you know, technology is very important, uh, but I want to make sure that we're not losing the soul in our gaming experience and um, that we're still at the end of the, the day focused on the play and the emotional experiences. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, very poetic. If I may offer up one word, it would be maybe intersectionality. And really by that, what I mean is, uh, you know, the key primary innovation is going to come from a multitude of different things that are going to come together. And then there's something emergent that's going to come out of that. Also very poetic. I completely agree with that. I think it's, it's really an organic linear process. It's usually a confluence of things that catalyzes something else entirely. But yes, I, I can totally see that. Justin, what's your word? I hadn't thought about answering it myself. So. Hey, you're like the professor that gives an open-ended question. And then it's like, well, there really is no answer. <laughs> so, so, I mean, um, I will say that if I can pick one word for any industry, really, what I think is most important for the next pick any period of time is curiosity, mm -hmm. right? So what we all should be is curious about what else can be mm -hmm. done and how differently things can be done. And, and I think, you know, both of you are actually good examples of people who are trying to figure that out all the time. So I don't know if that's a punt on my, on my end, but that's just kind of how I approach all things. Uh, and I think industries generally get, when they get mm -hmm. stale and they're, they stop being curious is when uh, someone comes in and disrupts them. I, I'm kind of obsessed with light fields. So I, I'm obsessed with AI. I'm obsessed with light fields. And the reason why I'm obsessed with light fields in games specifically is I don't think we've thought about how to make a game engine that is really designed for an experience in light fields. I mean, I, I just can't even contemplate how to make, let's just call it a first person shooter game with that kind of mm -hmm. an experience. But I think someone's going to figure something brilliant out 
and it's going to completely change the depth of immersion. And, and it's going to completely change how we build things after that. Because mm-hmm. games often, they they develop the kernel of something, give you exposure to one use case, but then somebody takes that use case and the evidence of that technology applied in that way and applies it in something completely different than games. So I, I feel like the game industry will be one of the first to figure something really interesting out with light fields, and that'll just take off in so many other directions, both entertainment-wise, consumer, and, and commercial. That was more than one word. <laughs> On that note, we are at the end of our podcast. So thank you, everyone, for joining today. It has been a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Great questions. Uh, I, great answers. And, you know, the three of us are local. So we ladies should be getting together at some point, doing <gasps> yes, something too. fun together. And we should mix it up and pull Phil and Sean and Brandon into the mix, too. Yes. Uh, and then convince Justin oh, to fly out. I, I end every podcast with, we got to convince Justin to fly out. J- Justin, where are you? where are you from? I am in Chicago. He is a true Chicagoan, like through and through, which is awesome. And <laughs> I love I love my Chicago roots. So I love the ability to continue to collaborate with him while he's there. And I love the ability to get fresh water anytime. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.